For the past few months, we have been dissecting, we have been analyzing, we have been studying, and we have been receiving from the book of Galatians. And prayerfully, some things were learned. Perhaps some things were clarified. Maybe some things were definitely repeated for the sake of retention. And hopefully, not for some, but for all, we have understood a greater liberation and the freedom that comes from understanding the finished work of Jesus Christ. And we have now come to our final message in the book of Galatians. And I find it fitting that although we're closing a chapter in this book, we are beginning a new one for this church. And my prayer is that as we glean from these truths today, from the end of this book, it will thrust us into the story that God has for this local church with greater zeal and faith. What more does Paul have to say after all that he has said from this book? Can there be any urgency left in him? Can there be any insight concerning the finished work of Jesus Christ being the only way we can be saved? Is there more? Is there more? There's a final warning and a final benediction that Paul gives to the church of Galatia and the churches in the region. And we see here from verse 11 down, what these warnings and what these benedictions really are. How important is the book of Galatians? Well, easy answer, right? It's just as important as any other book in the Bible. But I want you to notice from verse 11 how Paul wants to end. He says, See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It's interesting to know that Paul wants to clarify that he himself is the one who wrote and penned this letter to the churches. You know, for the apostles, many of them, it was their custom to have a secretary record these letters. It was their content. They were driven by the Spirit. But they would have another write it out, and perhaps maybe near the end of their letters, they would sign off with their own writings. But Paul wants to make it very clear. I wrote this. I wrote this. This matter of the gospel being attacked is so dear to my heart that I allowed every content to come straight from my heart to my hand to this paper to you. This is no light thing. This is, this is crucial. This is emergency protocol. And that tells us something about the gospel. Whenever the gospel is tampered with, whenever the gospel is, is trying to be changed or, or anything concerning its pure content being attacked, it is of serious matter. Then he says... Look at the large letters. I'm not just writing it to you, but I'm writing it to you in all caps. Speaking of emphasis, speaking of urgency, speaking of a heart that is truly concerned about the well-being of these Christians. And I think this is amazing for us to see because Paul took ministry, took the gospel to heart. This wasn't a job for him. This wasn't something that he just did for a paycheck. This wasn't something of personal benefit if you attack the gospel, you attack Paul. And he knew that anything that came against Christ and his finished work, he would be the one to step in to the front lines and deal with it for himself. See what, what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. What is he about to do right now? What is his final word to this church? What is his final word to us? Well, perhaps we are familiar with this truth, that Paul has been dealing with false teachers teachers that have been coming into the churches and trying to persuade them of a different gospel. And what he's about to do now 
if he hasn't done it already, is pull the sheets from these false legalists and to expose them once and for all. He wants to show the churches what their true motive is for coming in and preaching and attempting to persuade them away from the narrow path. And what he's going to do really is tell them, you know why they're coming in? Do you know why they're so nice? Do you want to know why they are presenting their content to you in such a way? I'm about to show you why, and there are three reasons why. And listen, it's not just three reasons for why these people are doing what they're doing because they're legalists. I believe what the three reasons we're about to explore are also the reasons why many reject the gospel altogether. Why many, mainly from a religious background even, would not submit completely to the gospel of grace. So as you and I hear these points, this is not some historical academic study of what these group of people believe and why they reject it. No, this is very much the reason why so many don't want to bend the knee at the foot of the cross and say, everything I am, everything I believe, all of my assurance is in you and you alone. Here's reason number one. Reason for these false teachers coming in to preach their false message and reasons why people cannot receive the gospel of grace for themselves. Verse 12, it is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised. Num reason number one for people rejecting the gospel and holding on to maybe their religious tradition or understanding of faith because they want to make a good showing in the flesh. That's what Paul says, doesn't he? He says here that all their energy, all their teaching, all their evangelism is motivated by one thing. I want to put on a show. It's for me to display something of self-righteousness. It's for me to display something of some pious performance that would impress a certain audience of my apparent spirituality and my apparent ability to produce my own righteousness. Listen, these legalists were not concerned about their relationship with God. They were not really fighting for what they believed to be true, maybe some. But Paul is going straight to the heart of the matter and he's saying, it's all a show. It's all an elaborate play. And what they are doing is they are using their apparent faith, their belief system as a platform to try to receive some kind of applause from an audience to say, oh, just look how religious they are. And look how consecrated they are. And look at what extent they have brought about to their faith in God with marks on their body and and." Removing of this and not observing that and observing this. He goes, it's all a play. It's not genuine faith. It's not genuine spirituality. It's not stemming from a real love for God. And believe it or not, this is the difficulty of many. Especially those who hold to a different tenet of faith that produces a works-based relationship with God. You know, we think of people, why they reject the gospel, why they don't want to give their lives to Christ. And we say, because they don't want to let go of their sin. That's true. But there's also another reason. They can't let go of their boast and self-righteousness in their attempt to gain salvation and their works for their sanctification. But see, when you and I become Christians, what we do let go of is any boast. And any boast that you and I have, our boast in our salvation is in Christ. Our boast in our transformation is in Christ. Our boast in any achievement is in Christ ultimately. You know what? Some people can't handle that. For Christ to get all the glory, no, no, no. I need something 
of credit if I'm going to do this thing called spirituality or religion. And Paul's saying it's all a show from these guys. But the gospel, as Isaiah describes in that vision, the train of his robe fills the temple. There is no room for anybody to glow. There's no room for anybody to get any attention from anybody else. Christ gets every inch of glory. And when he wants to sit on the throne of our hearts, you better believe that his train will fill our hearts. And not one thing of us will receive any recognition from any man. But these people couldn't handle that. They were driven by a different motivation. And Paul says, this is not the only reason. They want to make a good showing in the flesh. It would force you to be circumcised. And we see something in the second part of verse 12. And only in order, look at this, that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. Here's motive number two for the reason why people will not submit to the gospel of grace. They know that they're going to be persecuted for it. And there are those who fear men when it comes to being prompted and being even convinced of truth. The fear of man has different faces, doesn't it? Fearing people, it's not limited to one type of fear. There are those who fear the unbelieving, flesh-indulging people in their circles that would try to attempt to mock them and scorn them for their allegiance to the cross. There are others who even at the thought of experiencing some kind of division in their family is enough for them to reject the Lordship of Jesus Christ being taken in a very serious matter. Or maybe, like these legalists, the fear of persecution is not from friends at school, is not from your coworkers, is not from your family, but it's from other people who hold to what you believe and you're fearful of what they will do as a part of your circle. I believe this is what these legalists were afraid of more than anything. What will the other people who believe what we believe say if we were to embrace the cross of Christ? And this is something very real today, and it was something very real in Jesus' day. Let me read this scripture to you in John chapter 12, verse 42. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities, we're talking about men of influence, men of status, Men who perhaps have given their lives to teaching the law. Even the authorities believed in him. They could not deny the power and the truth that was radiating from this God-man, Jesus Christ. They believed. It's like, surely this is the one that was prophesied. Surely this is the son of David. Surely this is the Messiah. They believed in him, but for what? Fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it. That's trouble. Why? Because our faith is based on confession. If you confess with your mouth and believe in your heart, not just believe in your heart and don't confess. If you confess with your mouth, but they would not confess it. Why? Isn't this a sad commentary? So that they would not be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. So what was the resistance all about? These religious men, these Pharisees, 
and what they had to say and the influence that they had in society. They were so concerned about what they would do to them, whether in speech or in deed. And they were concerned about the community aspect of the synagogue and the system of the synagogue having to be forsaken if they would embrace the simple gospel message. And we think, really, is that all that it was? Fear is a fearful thing. Because fear of such things can actually bring a person to deny even the miraculous right before their eyes. John chapter 12, we see authorities that were fearful. What are the community going to think? What, what about my traditions? What about the recognition of some religious men who had influence in our circles? But you go to John chapter 9 and you see something else. You see of a man who was born blind. Born blind. And Jesus heals this man. And when he is healed, it caused a commotion, so much commotion that the religious leaders step onto the scene and they don't really believe that this man was born blind. He's claiming that he sees. People are listening to what he has to say, but they want to hear from the parents. And so they grab the parents and they ask, is this your son? Yeah, that's our son. Absolutely. Was he born blind? He was born blind. And you think, come on, say it. Tell him. Believe your son. And then they go on to say, but we don't know how this happened. And not only do they say that, they completely divert it back to their son and say, ask him, he's of age. They wanted nothing to do with interrogation. They wanted nothing to do with testifying of the power of Christ. They completely bounce it back off to their son and say, he's old enough to answer. We don't want to get involved with this whole thing. And John takes the time to comment why this was so. And he says in John chapter 9, 22, his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. They feared the Jews, for the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he is of age, ask him. Fear is a fearful thing, isn't it? And it's not a fear that is being described here in the general sense of facing some potential danger. I don't believe that's what the fear is. Because that's not what the Bible says. The fear here that is operating in these parents, the fear that is operating in these authorities of these religious institutions, the fear is not what danger am I going to face, is that I'm going to have to let go of what I really love. The glory of man more than the glory of God. That's what these legalists perhaps we're fearful of to some degree. But you know what I read about? I read about a man named Moses in Hebrews eleven twenty five, who said, as a commentary of his life, he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. For he was looking to the reward. Moses had the palace. Moses had the position. Moses had political influence. And yet he concerned affliction. He considered affliction, wilderness, two million people complaining day in and day out almost. Wearing the same clothing. All of those things he considered greater wealth than whatever Egypt had to offer. Why? Because he was not looking at the immediate reward. He was looking to a greater reward. Now let me ask you this very practical question. Who do you think is regretting the decision that they made? More. 
Moses or the authorities in Jesus' day? See, it is the lack of the eternal perspective that can be so crippling to our devotion to Christ, to our allegiance to Jesus Christ. But this is the answer, that he saw something ahead. In verse 25, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God. Link me with the people of God. If it comes with being mistreated, so be it. Why? More than enjoying the fleeting pleasures of sin, including receiving glory and recognition from men, including being part of a traditional community, and you don't want to be exiled, and you don't want to be excommunicated. You think this is a problem in Jesus' day? You would be amazed to know how many people from a traditional background cannot confess Christ because of the very same reasons that the authorities and those parents did in Jesus' day. It's a very real thing, and some of you come from that background, and you know very well what I'm talking about. And they can't confess Christ. Oh, they hear the Bible, they realize it's true, they hear the gospel, they've been convicted, but what is holding them back? Fear. I can't walk away from what I've grown up with my whole life. I can't say no to this. This is what I'm familiar with. This is what I live for. This is what I know. Do you believe Moses could have come up with those same excuses? I grew up here. Egypt is my home. This is all familiar to me. To say yes to Christ might be to reject this. I, I can't do it. Whether you're here, if you're from that background, hear me very carefully. Look to the reward. Not to the immediate pleasure that any of those things can offer, even if it's comfort and familiarity. And there are those who even have taught false doctrine, maybe willingly or unknowingly. And when they've come to the knowledge of truth, listen, they will not change their teaching even if they have a huge public platform. Why? For the sake of their reputation. What will people say of me if I change what I've been preaching for years? Or, or am I going to have any credibility from this moment on? Are anybody going to actually believe what I have? What about my books? What about my, my congregation? I've been preaching a certain truth. And now what are they going to say when I come up and say, the Bible actually says this. Forgive me, I've been wrong. Some of you are probably up to date with a famous prosperity preacher that has apparently now repented and renounced the prosperity gospel. And in his initial confession on live worldwide television, he admitted that he had been dealing with this truth for years. But what was his fear? I was afraid of those that I knew that preached this message as well, my friends. And I really cared about them. And I really cared about what they would think about me if I were to walk away from this teaching. I applaud his honesty. And many people, if they were honest with themselves, would say, that's the reason why I can't fully embrace the gospel of Christ. Because I know that it's going to require something of me, what I've been familiar with my whole life. Reason number three. First reason was, for a good showing. The second reason was for the fear of persecution. The third reason is found in verse 13. But they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh. Here's the third reason. Because they lived for a different ambition. They lived for a different ambition. These false teachers, again, were not in the churches because they were concerned about the well-being of their souls. They were not concerned about salvation. They were not concerned about know, them knowing the power of God, the love of God, relationship with God. That's not the way they were after. What they were after was this, your numbers to us. 
and we have a message, and we have a new ministry, and we want a greater following, and all you guys are are statistics to help feed our pride. That's what Paul says. He goes, they want you to circumcise yourselves. They want you to apparently devote yourselves in covenant to God fully through this act, but to boast, to glory in the fact that when they go back to their green rooms and they go back to their places, they can say, look how many people we got. Look at our following. Look at our Instagram followers. Look at our Facebook. Look at all the money coming in, whatever it may be. And I love the boldness of Paul. He goes, all you are to them is just a means for their selfish ambition to be satisfied. And many people today perhaps are not trying to convince people to join a religious club that contradicts the gospel for the sake of their egos. But it is possible that many people today cannot say yes to the gospel because to accept the gospel would mean to reject any other selfish ambition in their life that contradicts the gospel. It's not limited to religious pursuits. I remember one time preaching at a, a retreat and the sermon was on the rich young ruler. That was a message that we believe was on our hearts and when we preached that message, would you know it, in that crowd was a rich young ruler the most obvious rich young ruler that I've ever met in my entire life. He was honest, he was candid, he was bold. And this person couldn't wrap around his head. I mean, a couple hours of a conversation. He could not fathom the idea that if I receive this Jesus Christ, I cannot pursue my passion for greater wealth, greater luxury, greater satisfaction in my flesh. It was just shattering to him. It was absolutely shattering. And some people cannot handle that. You're telling me that if I say yes to the gospel, that everything is swallowed up in my life by the mandates that are prescribed in this book? I could tell you another conversation with another young man who did not have a Christian background. And this young man was very passionate about what he called to be ministry. And his ministry was to take different peoples of different faiths and to bring them together and for them to just dialogue and discuss. Sounds noble. Sounds good. But then I asked the motive behind it. And I asked, was it so people can come to know truth? Was it so people can be converted to the, to the revelation of who God really is? Was it so people can know salvation? Oh, no. It's just so that we can just talk and perhaps find a common ground and maybe realize how alike we really are. And when I presented the gospel, when I presented the truth of what the Bible says about who God is and what Jesus is all about, you can tell that that would interfere very much with his goal in life. Because we know that when we follow the gospel, we are urged with a mandate to preach this gospel and to bring people not just to dialogue about God and leaving them damned, but for them to realize that there's a true and living God that wants them to know forgiveness of sin and they can be saved. Yes, dialogue is fine. Don't get me wrong. Yes, conversation should be encouraged. Absolutely. But if the end goal is not for you to receive this Christ, there's an issue there. And I can give you example after example after example of individuals who will not say yes to this Christ because to say yes to this Christ is to say no to other things. And perhaps... Not only were they fearful of the persecution that would come from their camp, maybe they were also reluctant to give up this goal of boasting in the flesh through other people circumcising their own flesh. Are you one of those people that I just mentioned? Are any of those reasons, whether you're here this morning or you're watching online, 
You can't fully say yes. See, the problem here is that they didn't say fully say no. They embraced the gospel to some degree, but they had their own version of it. They had their own implications involved with it. They had their own conditions with it. Is that you? Do you, do you put this thing on just because it's a show? Do you want to show people that you are a religious person? Are you fearful what people will say if you say yes to Jesus Christ, even religious people? Or do you have a different ambition in life? And you know to sign up your name for Jesus would mean to sign it up with blood, total commitment. And with that, maybe saying no to other things. That was surely the case for these men. And you know what Paul's gonna do right now? Paul's gonna put himself on the scene in conclusion. And he wants to place himself in contrast to these men. And Paul wants to say, if these are these men, look what I am in Christ. But I want us to see it this way, not just who Paul is. I want to see that Paul is going to give not just three contrasts to who he is compared to these men. I want to see three evidences that Paul and whoever you are, are truly one who embraced the gospel. Three evidences that you and I have truly embraced this gospel. Look what he says here in verse 14. But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Here's evidence number one. Your life is centered around the cross. Your life is centered around the cross. He says, my hope for salvation is the finished work of Jesus Christ. And we've heard so much of this throughout the series, have we not? It's undeniable that this man lived, breathed, preached, ate the gospel. And his boast was, that's where I am. My security, my assurance, my righteousness, my salvation is there and nowhere else. But we have to read carefully because Paul's boast in the cross is not merely his confidence in his salvation being secure in that work. Paul's boast in the cross goes beyond that. Paul's boast in the cross is his boast for his joy. Paul's boast in the cross is the boast of the purpose of his life. Paul's boast in the cross is the boast of the reason why he lives and moves and has his being. How do we know that? Because his boast is not just this cross gave me a ticket to heaven. He goes, oh, no, 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 no. This cross did much more than that. Because he says right here in the second part, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. You know, you have a lot of people that would boast in the cross concerning their salvation, but they will not, many will not boast in the second part of this verse confidently. Many people will say, yeah, my boast is in the finished work of Jesus Christ, but the implications of your boast in the finished work of Jesus Christ goes beyond your destination after you die. It deals with the journey between now and then. He says here, unlike these false teachers who live for the glory of men, when I bent my knee to the cross, I didn't just die to my self-righteousness. I died to this world, a society and a culture that is energized by Satan and is sustained and saturated by ungodly practices. 
He goes, all of those things are dead to me. You know, we think about a crucifixion. We think about a cross. And unfortunately, we have romanticized it. We have very much cleaned it up. If we were to decorate crosses back in Jesus' day, it would be a very strange thing because it was a torture device. And if you were to see a live crucifixion, it would be one of the most appalling, despicable, unattractive sights that you could lay your eyes upon. I can guarantee you this, that if you were to stand before a live crucifixion, some would even vomit at the sight. To see a man hanging there, bare naked, beaten and bruised and bloodied, seeing his flesh hanging like threads on a bloody beam, gasping for air, where every move of his body would be agonizing pain, would cause us to walk away. And Paul says, that sight is like what the world is to me. That's like what the world looks like to me. All of its pleasures, all of its pursuits, all of its promises, trying to convince me to extend my hand and receive it is like somebody removing a cross from being driven into the ground and laying it down on my feet with a bloody dead man and saying, you want it? Totally uninterested, totally not attracted, totally not persuaded by what this world and its sin has to offer me. A question this morning, is the world dead to you in such a way? Are you somewhat fascinated by it? Be honest now. Is there anything within you that is actually attracted to this world? When I mean this world, I'm not talking about nature. I'm not talking about the things in life that we can enjoy. I'm talking about the filth, the depravity, the antichrist ideology, the messages that are being pumped out in the media airwaves to try to pull us away from. Is that attractive to you? Because Paul says it's as ugly to me as it is when a man was crucified. This language is very rare today, we have to admit. But Paul was willing to stand alone for that statement. And you know what? He actually goes beyond that. He goes, not only is the world crucified to me, I'm crucified to the world. Now think about that. When the world looks at my life, when they see my Instagram, when they see my Facebook, when they see my ambitions, when they see what I do with my weekends, what they see is a man who is dead. They see a dead man. A man who doesn't live for self, a man who does not live for the things of this world, but a man who is set apart. A man who is surely, as the scriptures call us to, is carrying his cross and has died to self in every way possible. When the world looks at you and me, do they see a crucified man? Or do they see someone just like them? Alive and well, filled with the spirit of this age, we talk the same, we believe the same, we love the same things. Paul was so confident to say this, 
Not only is that hideous world dead to me, but I myself am dead to them. And don't think for a moment that it is completely unattractive to the world. Because you can believe that for some, it's a fragrance to see a man who's walking against the crowd like Paul did. I love this Paul. Because Paul was willing to stand against these false teachers and he was willing to even put himself out there with his popularity with the Galatians. He could have been a nice guy. He says, you know, I guess it's not a problem. No, he says, listen to me. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not concerned. I'm not in this for you liking me or not. I live for Christ. Evidence number one, your life is centered around the cross. All that you do, all that you, you, you plan, everything is orbiting around the fact that you said yes to Calvary. And if anybody were to dig up your life, they would see that the very core of your being is a heart beating for Christ. Evidence number two, for somebody who's embraced the cross, is that they know that the only hope for man is the cross. Look at verse 15. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. A person who's embraced the cross realizes that the only means by which they can be a new creature, and that others can be a new creature, is Jesus in his work. They know full well that my Christianity is not about what I do or don't do with my flesh. Everything about my faith has to do from a power above that has come in and entered into my life and has changed me. See, this, this man here is not concerned one bit whether you circumcise or uncircumcised concerning your motive if it's outside of being saved. But people were concerned about that. And he said, listen, you're all concerned about producing marks on your body to enter into a pleasing relationship with God. And you fail to realize that God is not after what you do with your body, what you do externally. He's after one change, and that's something that's hidden. It's your heart. That's what he really wants circumcised. That's what he really wants to be dealt with. The thing that people can't see necessarily. Paul says, this is a person who's embraced the cross. They know that the cross is the only means by that heart being changed. And the cross is the only message that can offer hope to anybody. You know in your heart if you've received this gospel that your message to the world, a hopeless world, a broken world, a questioning world is Jesus. Is Jesus. And you're not ashamed of it. Yes, we need boldness. Yes, sometimes we're fearful. But you know down deep inside your hope, your need is Him. Not do this and don't do that. Not the absence of this and the presence of that. It's Jesus. You need Jesus, man. That's what it is. That's what Paul is saying. And lastly, the evidence of somebody who's truly embraced the cross is not just that their life centers around it and not just because they know that it is the only hope for man, but lastly, you and I are willing to bear the marks for it. Look at verse 17. Paul says, from now on, let no one cause me trouble. For I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. What a way to end a letter. Let no man trouble me. What is he saying there? I believe what Paul is saying is, don't try to convince me. Don't try to persuade me. Don't try to argue with me the need to be circumcised or observe the law in order to be right with God. I don't need to be troubled with such things. They were troubled. He didn't want to be troubled. 
I'm not concerned about marks because I got my own marks. I don't want to inflict upon myself greater suffering for God when I've suffered enough. That's what he's trying to say. And it's an amazing statement that he's making here because these false teachers were trying to convince the Galatians to create marks on their bodies and, and Paul's saying, I already got my own. I don't need to add another one, so to speak. You can't beat yourself, starve yourself, learn for yourself enough to come to the point of being a new creation. It's crying out to Christ and confessing your need for him, but it's also willing to live a life that will endure the affliction to stand for it. And that's what he's saying here. What marks is he talking about? Think about Paul's life. I believe if you were to see the Apostle Paul, you would see something else than what we see in our paintings. I believe you would see a man with scars from the top of his head down to the bottom of his chin. I believe if he were to take off his shirt, you would see lashes and bruises and bent muscles and all these different disfigurations. I believe even he would walk with a limp, maybe. Think about the lashing this man received. Think about the beatings, the stonings. Think about the shipwrecks this man endured. And though it may have been hideous to the eyes of men, I believe Christ and the angels would have seen them as tokens of love. And Paul was not ashamed of these marks. I believe all of those things he wore as badges of honor. He's not saying this with grief. He's not saying this with a sigh. He is saying this with a confidence. I bear on my body the marks of Jesus Christ. And I think what we can glean from this is this. That one who has embraced the gospel is also willing to embrace suffering for it as well. And those scars look different for everybody. We live in a day and we live in an age where maybe on this side of the world, where we don't have to worry about actual scars. Give it a little bit of time, though. That might change. But scars are still real, whether they're physical or not. There are scars that come from family members that believe differently when you said yes to Jesus. There are scars that come from lost friendships because of your yes to Jesus. There are some scars that come from being cast it out socially on different spheres. There are scars from even you holding on to your devotion to Christ even when things are not going your way, whether with your physical body, with your, your emotional state, your mental state, your inner circle, whatever it may be. Everybody in this room, I'm sure, can lift up their sleeves and show some scars for the sake of Christ. And Paul's saying, I gladly bear them on my body. You want to boast in circumcision as a means to attain God's favor? Let me show you the scars that I received because I've been favored. Let me show you the scars that I endured because I've been accepted. Let me show you the scars that I have because of faith, not for it. You don't have scars now, just hold on tight. They're coming. But when you do, realize to him, Realize to your general, realize to the captain of your salvation that those things will be pins and badges and medals on the sleeve of your soul. Don't reject it. Don't be afraid from it. Don't run away from it. 
They're coming, and when they do, remember this scripture. Remember this scripture. How does Paul want to end this letter? He's been preaching grace from the beginning. He's been fighting for grace. He's been championing grace. He's been fighting against legalism from the moment that he placed his pen on that material. And now he says in verse 18, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. Grace. You know what his main concern was? Though he was very bold, though he was rebuking and reproving and one would argue even harsh. He ends this letter with a prayer, with a desire for them to understand something that they once knew, something that they once walked in, something that they once worshipped, grace. I want you to know grace, not here even, not here. Not, not just here, not just, not just here. I want you to know grace in the deepest part of your being. I want you to know grace in your spirit. Surely this man was inspired by the Holy Spirit to end the letter in such a way. And what is our prayer at the end of this letter, now continuing in some other book or a series of messages, it is this, to know that grace. Maybe you know that grace initially, but for the one who has embraced it and has fought for it and has stood for it, that you and I would know greater measures of it and that we would know the depth of it. I made this statement to somebody the other day when we were just discussing the loving kindness of God And it's a very simple statement. It's nothing deep or profound. But it never fails to shock me to realize my lack of understanding of the love of God. I see certain things in the scripture and it astounds me. See, so many people choose to look at the scriptures and see a wrathful God and a a God that is bloodthirsty and a God that is eagerly wanting to throw people in a pit of hell for eternity. I don't see that God. I see a God who can take the most atrocious, vicious, vile man, and the moment that he humbles himself, he he runs. He runs to forgive him. I see a God that when even somebody who has walked in this truth and has walked away from this truth for a season, only to come back, I see a God that takes the best robe, a ring, and makes a feast. This prayer is not just for the Galatians that are struggling with understanding the gospel. I believe this prayer is needed for all of us, that we may know a depth of grace. Really, to know a depth of grace. And to swim in that grace. And to worship in that grace. And to continue another day in that grace. God is for us, not against us. And this prayer for grace, though not immediately in this context, I proclaim for this context. May God give us more grace as we transition as a church. May God give us the grace to remember that this is all about the cross. We were praying in there this morning, and you know what was coming out of our mouths? God, no matter how much this church grows, no matter what you give us as resources, no matter the opportunities that might be facing us, let us never forget that it is about this gospel. It's not about getting more people. It's not like the false teachers that wanted more to come in so that they can, they can boast in their newsletter about how many people and just counting people off just like numbers in a factory. No. Every soul is precious to Christ. This whole thing would be about bringing people into the knowledge of this grace. Not about entertaining people. 
not about impressing people, not about just satisfying some social need in our life. No, for them to come to the foot of the cross and to walk in this grace. I love what he says here in verse 16. And as all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. See, when you walk by this rule of understanding the grace of God, you better expect peace and mercy. And that's what we want others to walk in. That is our desire for this transition. That is our desire for this ministry. And each and every single one of you in this place, if you call this place home for your local church, may you realize that you are an instrument for this gospel. Whatever that looks like, whatever your giftings are, that is your calling. That your life and mind centers around the cross. Everything that you do, your job, your family, your romantic life, all of those things, your finances, centers around the cross. And the, the message of hope that you have for your friends, the message of hope that you have for your coworkers, is that it's not about circumcision or not circumcising, it's about being a new creation, creation in Christ. And as you and I walk, whether it's years or a lifetime, by the grace of God, know this, we will know something of scars but we will wear them with joy. And they will point to how Jesus is worthy. Jesus is worthy of our lives. And this is how we're going to close this morning. We're going to close in a prayer meeting. Do you know how we got up to this point? I can guarantee you this. Prayer. And it would be very foolish of us not to begin this new transition with prayer. I had somebody come up to me the other week and they, they said, when we came into the sanctuary, we sensed the presence of God. We sensed that the Holy Spirit was not, was not, well, not just this idea, but he was a person real in this place and not just in this building, because it's not about the building, but in the people that represent that building. And that person didn't even ask me anything. All that person did was look up right away and say, it's the prayers, isn't it? It's the prayers, isn't it? I thought to myself, yeah. It is the prayers. And the moment we stop doing that, say goodbye to all the ambitions. Goodbye to the power. Goodbye to the endurance and the grace that has brought us up to here. But as we sang, we're going to pray, let your glory fill this house. Would you bow your heads with me? I encourage you in this moment, meditate upon the work of Christ in your own life personally. And then meditate upon the work of Christ in this church corporately. And I'll say this one more thing. If you are in this place and you've heard the message of the gospel and you have not received it or accepted it, now's your chance. Now's your chance to say yes to Jesus. What does that mean? It means that you realize that he has forgiven you of your sin and that all you need to do is accept it as a gift and believe on it. It looks like you willing to repent of your sin, knowing that it put him on the cross, and you're saying, Lord, I've had many excuses to say no to you. I've had my community, whether it's a religious one or not, 
I've had my own selfish ambition or even the fear of persecution. Whatever it may be, Lord, I lay it all down. I look to a greater reward like Moses did. I want to be like that man Paul I just heard about. I want to know the power of the gospel. I want to know the freedom, the peace and mercy that comes by those who walk in this rule. Lord, please forgive my sins. Receive me. Receive me. I encourage you, you talk to him. You speak to him. You give your heart to him. And this can be the turning point for your life. Would you join with me as we pray? Lord, we come to you in thanksgiving that you've closed the book of Galatians to us, but you have opened something new for all of us in this season. We're so thrilled, God Almighty. We look to you as though your eyes are right upon us, God. We look to you seeing and believing that you see us. Lord, we take this ministry in its fullness, the Arabic service, the English service, every ministry involved. We pray that you would bless it. We pray that you would give us a fresh filling of the Holy Spirit, a fresh faith that you have something in store for us, and it's ultimately for your name. We ask, God, that you would empower this place. Lord, we, we pray that you would keep us low, humble, broken, needy, prayerful. And Lord, right now, in this specific moment, we ask for those who do not know you that are sitting in this house. We pray that you would change them, God. And we ask that every week, week in and week out, people would be changed. Not because of a person, not because of a talent, not because of gifting, but because of the, the word of God, empowered by the spirit of God, dealing with the hearts of men. Lord, may our eyes behold your glory, Lord, in the most powerful miracle you can perform, and that's taking a man, a dead man, a hardened heart, a stony heart, and changing them into a child of God. Lord, this is what we're after. This is what we're chasing. This is why we're, we're here, Lord. Be exalted and lifted high. And Lord, we sing to you as a fragrance of thanksgiving. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mm -hmm.